How's everybody? All right. Well, that's a good way to start. So take your Bibles in James chapter 4. I'm actually going to be in several places today. Uh, but James chapter 4 is the primary place that we're going to work from. Had a deacon in the church that I served before I came here who loved to walk past me and punch me in the arm. Uh, y'all know me well enough to know that I'm, you know, anti-preacher enough that when he punched me in the arm, my first response was to stab him in the heart. Uh, I never did that because he was big. And uh, so I, I finally adopted this posture that when I saw Howard coming, I would do like this because I knew that there was a punch coming and it was no small punch that he would throw at me. I want to take that picture. I want to push it off into you as we begin this morning. And I want you to kind of wrap your mind around this basic truth. It is inherent to the human condition that we tend toward being defensive. We put up our guard against things that come at us that we don't like. reality is that when those things that come against us and we bristle against them come, then we want to lash out immediately to that one way or another. So I want to keep that in mind for you as I take you through a little bit of a trip through some of my background. Um, Teresa and I spent one of the best vacations we've ever had uh, in a place called Mackinac, Mackinac Island to be exact. If you ever get an opportunity to go there, uh, you should probably. And don't go in the winter because it's located, this island is, between the lower peninsula of Michigan and the upper peninsula of Michigan. Right where two great lakes come together, there's this narrow channel of water and Mackinac Island sits in the middle of that. So in the wintertime, it's too cold to be there. And matter of fact, the island itself is such that uh, they don't allow motorized vehicles there. It's kind of a throwback to the old days. And... Um, it's a great place to be for a vacation. Uh, but there is this place there, and one of, because of the strategic nature of that island, uh, there is a fort there, one of those old historic kind of uh, national registry places called Fort Mackinac. It makes sense, and I think it was probably the French and Indian War when that was especially critical for uh, the United States as Traffic was going back and forth, and they needed some quick action force right there. And so as part of our time there, we drove past, or walked past in this case, and I was in a half marathon. I was running there, so we ran past this old fort with its high walls and all of that. Our defensiveness in life is not limited to a bristle against a punch. It also has a way of being collective for us. That fort pales in comparison to what I saw when I went to Turkey a number of years ago. We flew into Istanbul, uh, and whether you're aware of it or not, I don't know, but Istanbul is a city that is actually on two different continents. There's a narrow body of water that goes through the middle of it, and so part of Istanbul is in the continent of Asia, and the other part is on the continent of Europe, and so this narrow body of water that goes up into the Black Sea 
uh, is also strategic. It's such a great place and strategic place that Constantine moved his capital to uh, what was then called Constantinople. And uh, in the process of doing that, built these huge stone walls of defense. It was the center of the world at that time and the center of power, particularly for the world power. And so he built these walls and we took this... Uh, I don't. It's not really a cruise. It was a boat ride up and down that channel of water, and uh, these palaces on either side historically were different world powers who made that their capital would build their places, but all of them were fortified against the enemy. That is how we live our lives, and I especially want to t- tap into that. Uh, On this basic truth, we get defensive when there is a threat that comes against us, which pushes us into this passage of Scripture we're going to look at today because James is writing and he's been very direct and he's been very um, attacking almost, aggressive in calling out the Christians of that earliest church and saying to them, the things that you're doing are based out of selfishness and it's not wise and you're hurting the cause and it it was a tough stretch for me to preach because it was just this attack after attack you adulteresses what are you doing what are you thinking kind of stuff James is turning now as we get into uh, verse 7 and following he's turning the whole discussion now to okay so how do you get it right How, how do you do this thing called Christian living in the right way so that it matters not just to you and it's beneficial to you, but it's also beneficial to those people around you, the church itself. And by extension, it's beneficial for the kingdom of God in the community that is outside of Christ. So in verse 7, here's what James says. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, that's the passage that we're going to look at today. I could continue reading there all the way through verse 10. It's just this rapid fire, one thing after another. Do this and refrain from doing that. And those things all together uh, are composite where James says, this will get you where you're trying to go or where you need to go. But he begins with this idea, this command, really, that says, resist the devil. Tactically, what does that look like? And I started last week with this idea of tactics that we can employ. It's, it's not my idea, it's James's idea. We, we actually started in verse 8 last week because in verse 8, James gives us kind of the sum total. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, he says. And, and so all that's going to be involved in what we say through these verses 7 through 10 really kind of comes back to that. So here's where I'd like to start. We're going to just focus in on this resist the devil and he will flee from you today. Let's start with the obvious. James starts with the obvious. And that is that he doesn't argue for and make this big elaborate uh, presentation about the reality of the devil in our world. He just states it as a given, as a fact of life. 
But you know, we have to stop there. There There's several elements here before we even get to some of what I want to get. I just want to give you some practical tools today that will help with this resist the devil. Because I don't know that we have in our minds the right way of thinking about this. We think just build up a wall like they have in Istanbul that's hundreds of years old and everything will be good and the devil will leave you alone. Don't believe that. It's a lot more active than that, a lot more proactive than that. But before we get to those things, let me make a couple of comments here very quickly. On this idea of there being a devil, you know, most of us in here, maybe not all of us, we got to take that as, okay, so we get that. We find that throughout Scripture, this spiritual warfare thing. We can go to the book of Ephesians where Paul talks about that, Ephesians 6, I think it is. Uh, We could go and talk about that. And the reality is all through Scripture we find this actually from the very beginning, Genesis 1, 2, 3, we find this reality that Satan, the adversary, comes against God and his kingdom. Most of us, yeah, okay, move on, preacher. Do you realize, I I came across results of a survey not too long ago. I'm not sure when the survey was done, but I know that it was done within a reasonable period of time of where we are here. And Barna surveyed a group of people, and that cross-section, including church people, 68% of people were not sure that the devil really existed or they just flat said he doesn't. So here's what's, what's dangerous about that. I, I'm, I'm just going to tell you the first tactical step is to acknowledge that the devil's real. Because here's, what, here's what's dangerous about believing that he's not real. I, I this is kind of a ridiculous illustration, but maybe it'll help you lock into what I'm saying. I can convince myself to believe that a car cannot hurt me. As a matter of fact, I could go so far as to convince myself that cars don't exist. And I could walk out into the middle of Highway 69, 100 yards from where I'm sitting... And one of those things that I don't believe in will kill me when it hits me at 70 miles an hour. Now, I don't believe that they exist, but it still killed me. That makes sense? Okay, so for someone to say, I just don't believe in the devil. Well, you know what? You have the right to be dumb or believe that. Okay, I, those are not, you, just because you don't believe it doesn't make you dumb. That's not what I'm saying. You have a right on a lot of fronts to believe what you want to believe. But your belief is not equated with reality just because you believe it. So James begins here with the statement that he just goes, resist the devil. He doesn't argue for the existence of the devil. He doesn't give us 15 different scripture verses of why we should believe there's a devil. He doesn't take us back to the Garden of Eden. He doesn't take us to Job. He just says, resist this person, entity. So I I think with that in mind, let me make what I think are really important statements here. I think that our world today, contemporary Christianity, easy for me to say, contemporary Christianity And the way we think makes two critical errors. One of them is that we acknowledge the existence of Satan, but we are fascinated with what that looks like. I could go way back and talk about 
Mike Warnke, who years ago wrote a book. I think the title of the book was Satan Seller. If you get a chance to read it, don't. It's been proven by his own admission that much of it's fabricated. But it was a hot seller in the church for a long time because it talked about his alleged life as a satanic high priest or priest. Why would that sell so many copies in churches? Because it's easy for us to get fascinated with evil and especially Satan. I listened to the radio a long time ago. There were guys on there fascinated with casting out demons. Let me just give you a a little snapshot out of my background. When I was in middle school, uh, probably eighth grade, I'm guessing. I don't remember exactly. But I remember the moment very well. Because we had some friends at our house, and uh, this, this, they weren't my friends. They were adults, and my parents had been friends with them when we lived in Houston before my dad was called into the ministry. And uh, this guy was their Sunday school teacher in those days. And uh, so they came out from Houston all the way out to Slow Death to meet us out there. And as they were hanging out at our house for a while, my parents and this family started getting into this discussion about this guy, the ex-Sunday school teacher's newest kick in Christianity. Just as an aside, a lot of Christian people go on kicks instead of staying steady in the channel. And this guy got into this deal about casting out demons, fascinated with uh, Satan and the satanic realm. And so I walked into the living room just at the time that this guy was in this, okay, now I want to use the word incantation. I'm pretty sure that's not really right, but it sure sounded like that. And what he was doing was allegedly casting demons out of the fish in our fish tank. I didn't even know that fish could have demons in them. I knew that pigs could because of a story out of Jesus' background. But I, so anyway, this guy, I, I, was, I was dumbfounded. I, I, I remember standing there going, I ain't believing this. And then I started getting worried that maybe I had demons and he was going to try to cast them out of me. And I I, I vividly remember my mother swiveling around in her chair when she saw me there and she said, Mark Daniel, you need to go outside. My mother was smart enough to realize that a fascination with evil, even with a Christian slant on it, is a dangerous game to play. But our society jumps all over that. We're fascinated with evil. Look at some of the great movies of our time and how satanic some of the uh, content is. So one of the ways that we need to make sure we resist the devil is to not get fascinated with his kingdom. Get your mind focused in the right kingdom is the answer there. Here's another dangerous thing, I think, a game that we play, sort of. And and it's part of our Christian culture, and that's, that's what makes it hard for us to preach about it and teach about it. Because it's so prevalent in our culture as Christians uh, that we adopt it. Not because we've studied if it's okay, 
but because somebody else is doing it, and so that must be okay. And that infiltrates all of our churches and our conversations. It becomes part of what we say is okay. So here's the second really dangerous thing, I think, that that we make, uh, mistakes that we make with this. And that is that we assume power over Satan that we don't have. This came to me, again, as a middle school student. Now you know why I'm so messed up. I had all these bad experiences. I, I, I was sitting on a bench at Alto Frio Baptist Encampment. Okay, That's out near Lakey, Texas. Maybe you know Uvalde, Texas a little bit more. Some of you guys hunt out there, I know. And, uh, so Alto Frio Baptist Encampment is on the Frio River just outside of Lakey, Texas. And back in those days, uh, worship for youth camp was held in the tabernacle, uh, which had no walls on it. So it was wide open and summertime, and so all kinds of right on the Frio River. And there are all kinds of reasons for me not to close my eyes when it was time to pray. And so I didn't. I was checking out girls, and I was looking around when the guy on the piano said, hey, let's pray. And he's playing the piano, and he's doing it. And all of a sudden, in his prayer... He begins to pray to Satan at a, okay, now at a Baptist youth camp. This guy begins to, okay, now now here's where the cultural part comes in. I know what most of us are going to say, and this is probably going to hammer on some people's doors here. I get this, okay? So listen with both ears now. He began to pray to Satan and saying, now Satan, I bind you. From this place. And it was a long drawn out thing where he was talking to Satan. I was, as a teenager, I was going, I didn't know Christians could pray to Satan like that. We 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 do that. We get that. Because we see that. In the name of Jesus, I bind you and all this kind of stuff. Uh, Let me tell you something. That's just as dangerous as, or maybe more dangerous, uh, than just being fascinated with Satan. Here's a good reality check for us. Here's why I say that so bad. Look in your Bibles. Acts chapter 19. Now, this shouldn't take us long to get there. Just a handful of books backwards. Acts chapter 19. And I know that for some of you, I haven't established my point well enough for you to get it yet. So this will help, and then I'll make a comment when we finish reading it. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. I'm not going to take the time to set the context. You can go back and read it. Here's where it is. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Now let me interrupt the reading for just a second to throw a warning out there for you. There are those religious charlatans of our day who will encourage you to just send in a small gift and I'll send you a prayer cloth. You know what we call those prayer cloths in Texas? Wash rags. Let me tell you something, the pride, the spiritual pride of an individual who thinks that his 
persona is enough that if he just touches this and sends it out to his donors that they're going to automatically get healed or whatever. That's ridiculous. Save your money. Give it to me. Something. Just don't buy into that Mickey Mouse garbage. Paul's a different guy. Okay? This is in context a big statement, all right? Verse 13. With all that other stuff going on and the Holy Spirit working through Paul and that stuff, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. In other words, in the name of Jesus, be gone. Or as we would say, in the name of Jesus, I bind you, Satan. Same kind of context here. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? <laughs> now this is, as I said in the first service, when you, when you know you're about to get in a fight, there is always that moment that flashes across your mind, rut row. That's this moment. Verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I want you to hear that. I bind you, Satan, might just get to you before it's all said and done. Now, I know that it is so much a part of our culture that this is challenging for some of us. And I, as a rule, don't tell you what to pray. And we'll get to prayer in a little bit if we have time. But I don't don't typically like to tell you what to pray. But let me just encourage you at this point. You can make sure that when you start addressing Satan and trying to take authority over him, you better be double sure that God told you to say that in the first place, not just that you heard it somewhere. Because you might just get yourself in trouble. Back to James. Assuming authority that we don't have over Satan is dangerous because Jesus Christ, in fact, has authority over Satan. He has already said that Satan is defeated That is a statement out of time for us. We live in the now. He is stating a principle that is above time. It it, it surpasses time. But even now, Jesus acknowledges that for a time, Satan in his kingdom will have power here. Don't think that you're bigger and stronger than he is. He'll clean your clock. So we start by knowing that we have an adversary, and we respond to that accordingly. And we understand that the the language James is using here is literally to take up a defensive posture, but to do so with urgency. Back to those images I tried to give you as we began, as you sail up that strait of water between the two continents, 
in what is now Istanbul and you look over and you see these massive walls that have stood the test of hundreds of years as a reminder that there are those evil forces who would come against you. And James says, you better buckle up and get ready for the onslaught because it's coming. So tactically, I think there are two ways that we tend to resist the devil. Here's the first one. There is that lone wolf mercenary Christian. Liam Neeson. I have a special set of skills. I will find you. We, in our movie culture, we have all kinds of those guys because we like that. That's the hero kind of guy, right? Rambo. I'm going to take on the entire world. Every generation has had their guy like that. Some of you seasoned people out there. Charles Bronson. <laughs> yeah, Dirty Harry. That's a different guy. Chuck Norris. The teenager. Not picking on you. Just hanging a, me- a mental image out there. The teenager who listens to his youth pastor at some other church, not this one who says, I'm going to defy everybody. I'm going to carry my Bible to school. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying, if you're going to go it alone, a mercenary Christian, you better be sure that devil's coming after you with that. Sometimes we have to go it alone. That is part of the nature of the Christian life. We, we are in this in such a way that there are those moments that we have to go it alone. How are you sleeping at night? You know the time that Satan has the best opportunity apparently to get to me is in the middle of the night. When I lay down and try to go to bed and my head starts thinking about that knucklehead who said this and the other knucklehead who did that and and all of these things where I elevate myself to be God and, and pass judgment on all of those knuckleheads out there. Let me tell you something. The moment I give in to that, Satan has won the battle with me. I would love to tell you that I'm above that, but I'm not. And neither are you. You can go it alone. There are times you have to go it alone. Picture Jesus in the wilderness and the temptation at the beginning of his ministry. Picture Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of his ministry. There are times that you're going to have to go it alone, and you better bring something to the table because Satan will bring all of the stuff that he's got at his disposal to get you to fall. This is a real battle. So that's the first part of it. We normally or sometimes go alone. The other side of it is that we form alliances if we're smart. It is not the wise person who goes it alone in life and especially in the spiritual life. At Crestwood, we talk, and Aaron's already brought it up today, we talk about connections, and we work at that here. Because we know that we need each other. I I am much stronger with you or a group of yous with me to help me avoid that tendency to just jump off and do something very dumb and satanic. I know satanic maybe gets your attention, but you know what? The moment you start talking about somebody and tearing their 
their character down. That's satanic. That's not of God. So we need each other, and we work at that. And on the the announcement sheet that you got across the top, we identify ourselves as a connected community. We have to work at that. Say more about that in just a second. But the best alliance that you form is the one with you and God. That's why I started last week with verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you because he's the one who has defeated Satan. He's the one who can bind Satan, has bound Satan. He's the one who will take you through the battle in the middle of the night. So draw near to him and draw near to his people. And inherent in both of those realities, whether it's you alone or you with other people, is this fundamental truth, and that is you cannot defeat this enemy. You cannot do it. You want a good example of that? One of the best of all the disciples. He's the guy who was front and center. He's the guy who always had the answer. He's the guy that even Jesus said, hey, come with me. Bring those other two guys and you come with me. Jesus did that a couple of times with these guys and they saw stuff that others didn't see. Simon Peter, hotshot disciple. See, that's a new mini-series we ought to put on TV. Simon Peter, I'm not going to take the time to read it now, but you can look at it uh, later. Luke 22, verses 31 and following. At a critical moment, Jesus looked at Simon Peter and he said these words to him. Satan has asked, desired to sift you like wheat. How would you like that to be your reality, where Satan himself takes you on as a project. Simon Peter was a real threat to Satan and his kingdom. He would be the key leader of the early church. Jesus said, he's desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. (laughs) What a great truth. But then he goes on to say, And after you return, in other words, you're going to fail, dude. Who better to teach us how true this is than Simon Peter when in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, I think it is, he says this, Simon Peter says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to to devour. That's testimony time for him. And it'll be that for you if you think you have what it takes to take on the devil. So very quickly now, I'm going to run through a couple of things for you. What can you do? Simple tactics. Maybe not that simple. Now here, I don't want to lose you here because this gets, in, this gets into our culture. And I'm going to say things and you're going, oh yeah, I knew that already. No, I don't think you know at the level I'm talking about, or maybe you do, and that's just a good reminder. But here's the first one. If you really want to resist the devil, pray. Now, by now, those of you who know me know how frustrated I get with how we do church prayer. Oh, my Lord. I'm sure sometimes God goes, really? But you know, my Aunt Bessie, bless her heart, she bumped her leg on the table she got a big old bruise we, we need to pray for Aunt Bessie well you know we probably do if she can't see well enough to not bump into it we probably do need to pray for her 
you know, it's a very critical time in my spiritual formation process when I was trying hard to learn what it meant to break out of the church culture mode of what it means to be a Christian and into the biblical mode. Big difference. I came across this song by a group. Some of, some of my favorite preachers are, are musicians because they capture truth in ways that I get, right? So Petra, some of you remember that. A song that totally, totally revolutionized my perspective on prayer. Here's the, here's the way the lyric goes. Get on your knees and fight like a man. You know what? At that point, it was like, I didn't know that prayer was fighting. Lord, I know it now. Yeah, hours I've spent praying for my kids and my church people. Since then, I've had other people who have spoken into my life the value of prayer as a weapon of resisting Satan. Thomas Merton, Richard Foster, others. I don't agree with all of their theology, but boy, they taught me something about prayer. This is not that Mickey Mouse prayer approach where we have a list and we just pray for everybody's health. Let me tell you, every one of those people going to die sooner or later. It happens. That's the system we're in. So surely there is a deeper focus in prayer for us. And these people have taught me something about contemplative prayer. That's where you go in and you keep your mouth shut with God and you listen to what he has to say. And you draw close to him and you enjoy his presence like you can't enjoy anything else in life. That's prayer. That means all that other stuff is okay. It gets to be okay as long as that's not the sum total of our prayer life. Let me tell you something. If you don't have that kind of prayer life, don't ever bind Satan because you're not working from a good foundation. So be with God. That's the defensive posture. Here's another one. You need to choose your friends carefully. If you want to resist Satan, choose your friends carefully. Man, I can remember my mom when my friends would come to the house. I'd see her in the other room going. <laughs> I know now what she meant. You know what? That translated really well for me when my daughter started bringing some of those knuckleheads home with her. These guys, and you know, they were following her around with their tongue hanging out, and I was going, I'll kill you in a New York minute. You be careful who you're hanging out with. Because some of that may well be that you're inviting Satan in instead of resisting him. And be careful, those of you parents with teenagers here. Because I know, I was a youth minister. I used to get those comments from parents, right? Oh, my goodness. Those kids coming in, from, we're reaching these kids from the streets out there. They're, they're, they're bad influence on my kid. And I always want to say to them, no, your kid's the bad influence. Do you, have you met your kid? The reality is, Scripture says, bad company corrupts good morals, character, right? <laughs> so choose your friends carefully. And let me just throw this out there. As a church, we have Bible study classes that meet every week to help connect at this point. Okay? The, the, none of them are perfect. We have some pretty good Sunday school teachers around here. They're gonna, the, the, the Bible study is good. 
but it's the connection that you get that's an added benefit in those classes. If you're here and you don't go to Sunday school class, let me just encourage you to give it a shot. If you don't like the one you go to one week, let me take you to a different one. There, there's reasons for this, and it's not just, oh, i got to sit for another hour. No, this is about connecting, and we stand stronger together than we do by ourselves. Same is true for our committees, the different ministries that we have. We have committee meetings this afternoon. Let me just encourage those of you who are in those committees. Those are opportunities for connection right there, but what you plan for us as a church, make sure that they help us connect with each other. We need that. That's part of resisting the devil in and of itself. Alone, you will fall to this enemy. You don't have to, but you will probably. So here's the third one. Let's get our musicians coming on up and I'll be done. You need to make friends with God's word. You know, the first word that I got from my dad when I told him I felt like God was calling me to the ministry. Now, my dad's one of those mentors for me through the years in ministry. The first piece of advice he gave me, make friends with God's word. You know what? That's good advice. Let your filter and how you see life be scripture. Judge what you see against that truth. The Holy Spirit will enliven that and quicken that in you to the point that what you see and what you get with Scripture will help you make sense of what's out there. So the final one is to surrender. That seems like a counterintuitive approach to resisting for me to say surrender. Just surrender to the right team. This whole thing is driven by this concept, verse Six, verse seven, excuse me, first part. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's surrender. You want to beat the devil? Get right up in God's lap and let him fight him off for you. I'll take you to the final scene of the third in the trilogy of the movie called The Hobbit. That final battle scene, the dwarf king is on a frozen piece of water he's fighting off this hideous creature that represents all that will go wrong with the world if his side wins the battle. It is an epic battle where all of what is good is at stake. After that battle, there is this celebration that is tinged with sorrow. Because the elf king, excuse me, the dwarf king has died. But he defeated the evil forces. That's not a bad picture for us of what daily life is like for a Christian. There's a lot at stake in your battles with Satan. If you know the story of the Hobbit, you know well that it is a prequel to the Lord of the Rings. So that epic battle on that frozen piece of water, as important as it is at that moment, only sets up bigger battles to come. Bilbo gives way to Frodo, and the battle goes on. In your life, you are under attack, and you better buckle up 
resist. But don't think that this is the last battle because there's another one down the road and another one after that and another one after that, which means you might just build up scar tissue. Wouldn't it be better to build up defenses? Only Jesus has authority over Satan. Run to him. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask you to take this time. Mold us around the truth of your word. Work us from the inside out that we might mirror the truth of your word as it is quickened in us by the Holy Spirit. For those of us who are fighting battles and we feel like it's lost already, I pray a special sense of your presence and your power. 